Well, good morning, everyone, and um, we continue in our Gospel of Mark series, and today we continue in the passage in Mark chapter 12, and beginning with verse 35, where we find Jesus teaching in the temple courts, and, um, and he has just undergone an intense period of conflict. Uh, he arrives in Jerusalem, of course, on Palm Sunday, and his last days are spent in the temple courts. And we know from the scriptures that at night he retires to Bethany, just a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem. And um, during those days of teaching, in that last week, he condemns the very temple practices that the religious leaders condone. And what follows is a period of, of confrontation, questions and answers. And he has, he's baited the religious leaders in those questions and answers, and, and they've taken the bait. So during these days of conflict leading up to Good Friday, we read much in the Gospels about the kingdom that Jesus came to establish. He is the king, and he came to establish a kingdom. And this includes both what he condemns as well as what he commends among those who wish to be his father's children. So we see that Jesus is uh, an enemy of hypocrisy, but a brother and a friend of what true devotion to God looks like. And so those are the contrasting uh, ideas this morning in the message. So taking our Bibles, uh, we turn to Mark chapter 12, and beginning in verse 35, and we'll read to verse 44. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. And as he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law, for they like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show they make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. May God bless his word to us. Hypocrisy is what happens when our lives and our actions are, and our beliefs and our words do not line up. And probably the most frequently leveled criticism against Christians by non-Christians has to do with the idea of hypocrisy. I remember in my very first church where I pastored in Eagle River near Dryden, Ontario, I was visiting an old gentleman in the village, and I, I kind of saw the whole little area as my parish. So I was going basically house to house and over the time that I had there. And, and I visited him, and, and he was really quick to say that, oh, that church is full of hypocrites. And in my younger years, I didn't always have the same filters on my words as I do maybe in my older years, and so I responded to him rather abruptly, and it had been something that I responded with that I'd heard some, someone else say, but I basically said, well, there's always room for one more. 
Always room for one more hypocrite. I wouldn't recommend that as a good line in sharing your faith. But basically, hypocrisy is, is a very easy criticism to level at any Christian. When our actions and our words or what we live and what we believe do not line up. The word comes from the Greek word hypocrisis, which is originally had the meaning of acting on a stage. The first hypocrites in the Greek setting really were actors. A person pretending to be something they're not. Especially in the area of morals or religion, it became known as. Eventually it came to be a negative connotation because of a false presentation of beliefs or feelings, the act or state of pretending to be better than you are or to have feelings or beliefs which you actually don't have. So hypocrisy in its truest sense is a form of defrauding because you're professing something without actually possessing it. It's a pretense of virtue or piety like doing or saying a kind thing and yet doing or saying it in an unkind way. That's hypocrisy. And you know, we can all seem to, to smell hypocrisy in someone else a mile away. It's, it's disdainful. Yet, yet we can often, at the same time, make allowances for ourselves. And uh, in some areas, we, we do that. Hypocrites are masters at double standards. We have one standard for ourselves and one for everybody else. Jane Addams wrote, uh, The essence of immorality is the tendency to make an exception of myself. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, that which, that which we call sin in others is experiment for us. Another person said this, We have two kinds of morality side by side. One which we preach, but we do not practice. Another that we practice, but we seldom preach. I have often observed it in myself where I have a double standard. I typically see it, for example, if, I, if I'm at a supermarket and, I'm, and another till opens up. And, and I get to go ahead of somebody else that was ahead of me in the lineup, I think nothing of it. I think it's just kind of the luck of the draw. And yet if the same fate turns on me and I'm the one that's cheated out of position in line, I feel an injustice has been done. Well, that's hypocritical. It's having a double standard. It's thinking that I'm, I'm, it's good for me, but it's not good for, for somebody else. And of course, it's difficult to be free from all hypocrisy whatsoever. We are, <clears throat> excuse me, we are sinners, and pride is, is at the root of all sin, which means that we have blind spots. It means that we seek to control what others might think of us or see in us. You could say that hypocrisy occurs the moment another person enters the room with you. That's why part of spiritual maturity involves self-awareness. It's that pulling sin out by the roots in our lives and seeing that down deep we have a self-orientation that needs to be crucified daily and, and in order to live for Christ. But it's one thing to wrestle with traces of hypocrisy that the Lord reveals in us and quite another thing to be a hypocrite. Uh, one is a blind spot that you miss and then you correct it once you're showing it Another is a settled state of being and, and a settled state of, of seeing the sin but deciding foolishly that there's more to be gained by hanging on to it or to be lost by letting go of it than by repenting. The hypo hypocrite is the one who knows the right thing to do and yet decides not to do it or knows what's wrong and does it anyway. People don't usually fall into hypocrisy in that way. 
It's a road paved with self-interest, with many choices along the way, and they're all like little milestones that lead to a destiny. It's better in this way, then. The saying is true. It's better to be known as a sinner than a hypocrite because hypocrisy, by its very nature, is this deeper blindness or this deeper intentionality of sin. So when Jesus encounters the religious leaders in Jerusalem that we've been looking at in past weeks, he is not simply finding traces of hypocrisy that could be corrected with teaching, for he has taught many things, but they've been not listening. Rather, he found in them a settled blindness, a settled arrogance, a deceit that came actually to epitomize and define what hypocrisy was for all time. And his most scathing words that he ever spoke were reserved for such as these, as we're going to see this morning, because they did not practice what they preached. So let's take a look at Mark chapter 12, the, the passage that we've read. <clears throat> and as I said earlier, it's a passage that's full of confrontational questions presented to Jesus to try and trap him. We referred to that already in past weeks, how Jesus often would respond with, from questions with a question or with an answer that confounded the questioner so that there was no recourse. In verse 34, it says at the end of that section that from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions because they were, they were every time leading to a dead-end road. They couldn't trap him. And yet even though the religious leaders had given up asking Jesus questions, he had not given up asking questions. And so in verse 35, we read that he raises another concern about their teaching. Mark includes the more general question, how is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? But actually in Matthew's account, there is first a specific question directed at the Pharisees. In chapter 22 of Matthew, verse 42, it says, What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? And then in response, before they can answer, Jesus quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1. And it's a, it's a simple concept. We don't need to make it difficult. We, need to, we don't need to look for some hidden meaning here. The term son of David is not found in the Old Testament as a designation of the Messiah, even though the connections to David are clear. Yet the teachers of the law like to say that the Messiah would be the son of David. And so to expose their limited understanding, Jesus quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1, where David identifies the Messiah as his Lord. How can the Messiah be both the son of David and the Lord of David, is the question. Living on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection, we, it's easy for us to answer the question. But for the teachers of the law to answer it, it would mean perhaps believing that Jesus is the Messiah. And so the teachers of the law uh, had to, had to kind of swallow their pride, and, and they could not respond. Now, they did this in various ways. The teachers of the law also believed, for example, that Elijah had to come first before the Messiah. That was from Scripture in the Old Testament. And yet, when John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah, they did not want to acknowledge him as that person. They had good teaching as well about, about Moses as, as well, as about Abraham. And yet they failed to make the connection between Moses and Jesus, the one who is greater than Moses, or between Jesus and the seed of Abraham being Jesus and so on. Just like Jesus being the son of David, yet also the Lord of David. They could not grasp these things. And so 
in some way, all of these Old Testament people are prefigures of Christ, and yet the religious leaders could not or would not want to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. Now, there's a lesson here for us today as well, and it is that tendency in all of us to want to exalt religious leaders or religious figures in history over Christ himself, the Son of God. And in so doing, of course, we become idolatrous. One of the most common occurrences of this today, we see it in sects, in cults, in, in religious organizations. It can happen also in the Christian church where we exalt people. For example, in the Catholic church, when Mary is exalted above of Jesus himself. That is, is not what Christ calls us to. It's not what the Word of God teaches. In fact, I love where Mary is first introduced in Scripture when an angel of the Lord has visited Mary and has told her that she has been chosen to bear the Christ child. In Luke chapter 1, verse 38, her very first words recorded are, I am the Lord's servant. Now, if there's anything that could set it more straight, I don't know what it would be, but that's clear. I am the Lord's servant, she said. And she would not want any, in any way, to usurp or detract from the glory of Jesus Christ, the eternal God made flesh. She was a vessel of the Lord used to bring him to earth. And so we should also always be ready to, to place Jesus and his word uh, over any religious leaders and their words because he is the only one who has true authority. So that, that's how we, we begin by looking at chapter 12 and verses 35 to 38. But in our outline that we have, if we move on, we see that not only did Jesus correct the teachers, but he also condemned the hypocrites. And in the section of Mark chapter 12, we see that Jesus condemns the teachers of the law for their religious pride and hypocrisies. It's found in verses 38 to 40. They wore long flowing robes in public. They loved to be seen by others, to be greeted in the public places. They, they loved getting the most important seats in the synagogue. They loved the places of honor at banquets. When they prayed publicly, they made lengthy prayers for show to impress people instead of to draw near to God. And then the phrase in, in this passage about devouring widows' houses has to do with this taking advantage of the poor, the ones who have no social net to catch them. Jesus does not mix any words. He says at the end of this passage in verse 40, for they, these men will be severely punished for their sin. Here we see that Jesus is not just about mercy, he is also about justice. And so, like I said, he saved some of his most scathing words for this group of people. What a contrast the religious leaders were to the kind of leadership that Jesus said his disciples should follow, where he said that the greatest among you should be the servant of all, that even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. And so instead of humility, the religious leaders justified their arrogance and pride. Instead of a life of service, they justified their entitlement to the front of the line or the best of the seats or the honored places. Instead of caring for the poor and the oppressed in society, they justified living off of their misfortune, and so on and so forth. And Jesus, Jesus had, had nothing but, but confrontation and denouncement to say. Now what we read in Mark's gospel is actually but a toned-down summary of what Jesus actually said that day 
to the religious leaders in the temple. And to get the unedited version, uh, you need to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter, or Matthew chapter 23. I'm going to ask you to do that right now. Matthew chapter 23. And uh, I know it's a bit of a long passage, but I want to read Jesus' words uncensored, unedited. And um, they perhaps even come across a little less um, scathing in English as they might have in Aramaic, where Jesus spoke them. But listen to the words of Matthew 23. But as you listen, I want you to listen. Instead of thinking only about the religious leaders, I want you to try listening for you. Instead of thinking about first century religious leaders, think about 21st century you and hear what it is that might, might resemble your faith and how it is that the Lord requires us to realign our thinking with the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So beginning in Matthew 23 <clears throat> and verse 1. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, he is the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who, who are, enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools! Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men! Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it, and he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. But woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the dish and cup, and then the outside also will be clean. 
Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You blind, you build tombs for the prophets and, and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have kept taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. And so you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town and so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the temple and the altar I tell you the truth all this will come upon this generation and then Jesus changes his tone as we read in verse 37 of Matthew 23 Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so in this passage of Scripture from Matthew 23, uh, I hope that you, you heard some of the hypocrisy that Jesus pointed out in the religious leaders. And I hope that you could hear how sometimes we ourselves are prone to live in that double standard, to have that incongruity between the external and the internal. And so may we also be cognizant of that. We must ask ourselves the question, Lord, where am I hypocritical in my life? Where am I hypocritical in my faith? And... uh, May the Lord guide us to a sincere faith. Let's move on to our third point in this morning's message, the commending of the devoted. And though we seem to be changing gears in verse 41, as Jesus also changes setting to go to, go to the entrance to the temple where the offering baskets were placed, we do see the theme continue on. And the, the theme of hypocrisy is very much here as well. And so in verses 41 to 44 of Mark 12, the setting slightly changes from the temple courts and the patios to the entrance where the offering baskets were, were placed. The Mishnah speaks of having these shofar chests. They were offering boxes that had this trumpet-shaped opening on the top so that actually people could throw their coins from not not just nearby, but even a distance. And the boxes were set up in such a way that, that others could see what, what people were putting into the boxes. And so Jesus has already re- referred to this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, verses 1 to 4. He said, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. Here again, he's pointing out the being seen is the issue. When giving to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. Instead, when you give to the needy, do not let your right hand know 
what your left hand is doing. And then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And so Jesus is confronting the hypocrisy of doing a righteous deed like giving an offering in order to be seen by others. And we can picture what happens in Mark chapter 12, verse 41. Jesus and his disciples are sitting near the offering boxes. People are passing by, throwing in their coins. And uh, the bigger the coin, the louder the clang. And so the more spiritual one would seem to be. Remember that in ancient days, the coin was literally valued by its weight. A heavier coin meant that it had more metal and it was, very, it was worth more. A lighter coin had less metal and it was worth less. And it says in the Bible here that rich people were throwing in larger amounts and they made lots of noise. Of course, they would make lots of noise. That was the way the boxes were de designed. But then it comes along a, a poor widow, we're told. And she comes in and she drops in two small copper coins. And the coins that she gave were called leptons. The lepton was the smallest Greek coin available. It had the least value of any coin in the time of Jesus. It was called a leptos because that's the word for thin. In fact, this coin was so thin and so light that it, it would have made hardly any clanging sound whatsoever as it was dropped in the offering box. It contained a mere 1.55 grams of copper. If you were to put one of these, palm, uh, these coins in the palm of your hand, you would have been able to blow it off like a feather. That's how light it was. And this wood, widow places two of them in the temple offering box. Now Jesus uses this woman as an example. He says to the disciples that she has put in more than all the others. And of course, what he means by that is that they gave out of their wealth, out of their surplus, and she gave out of a sacrifice. She gave, and it, gave, it required sacrifice in order for her to give. She gave out of her poverty, Jesus said, everything that she had to live on. But the others gave out of their surplus. And the disciples would not have known that, but Jesus knew that. And so, so what do we learn from this passage? Obviously, the, the hypocrisy piece comes out in the sense that, that people were clearly giving to be seen by others. And that's why we, are, we need to be discreet about our giving. Because it is our Father who sees in secret that will reward what is done in secret. But we also learn in this passage that little is much when it is given from a heart of devotion to God. Just like the, the multiplying of the five loaves and the two fish that were found in the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, similarly, our little, when it is given in a heart of devotion, can be multiplied to, to, to minister greatly to, to the Lord and to His work on earth. And I'm convicted by this text that, that comes out about the widow's might, it's called. I'm convicted by this text because I recognize that in my giving or our giving, that oftentimes it really does not require sacrifice. When I think about how we give to the church and other organizations, it does not necessarily require a change in my lifestyle when I give. I, I don't change the way I live or dress or eat or travel. Um, my family does not suffer, etc. There's no sacrifice necessarily. And I am still 
pondering this peace. And so when the Bible talks about the rich, we need to remember that, that we are rich. We are in a better condition than anybody that lived on earth in the time of Jesus. We have more available to us in every way when it comes to living accommodations, transportations, food, health care, and, and the list goes on and on. We are richer than any person that lived at the time of Christ. And so I'm convicted by this text. I think that we, we should not gloss over these words without having an inward gaze and thinking, okay, Lord, what do I need to adjust in my life? How can I respond? Jesus commends this woman's devotion and holds her up as an example. And so we ask ourselves as well, Lord God, what is my true devotion like to your kingdom cause? As uh, Francis Schaeffer, the man who in the last century was noted for asking poignant questions about true discipleship, he asked the question in the series that he did, how should we then live? And we could add to that, how should we then give? And some of the characteristics that we looked at are the fact is that we should not give out of hypocrisy. We should not be giving in order to be seen by others. We should have a check in our spirit if we are doing something in giving because it's different because somebody is noticing. And, and that's one thing. Uh, secondly, I think that we learn from this that the focus on how much we are giving is a, is a danger instead of how much we've been given. So if, if we catch ourselves focused on how much we are giving, you know, at the end of the year, you come to income tax time and you look at, whoa, we did pretty good this year. Look at how much we gave to the average, compared to the average Canadian or something like that. If we're focused on how much we're giving instead of how much we've been given, I think that we are, are verging on hypocrisy. We're, we're missing the point. We're, we're, we've got the wrong focus. Um, the idea of, of also considering who is getting the credit for the giving that I do. Uh, the goal should be that the, that the person receiving is being blessed and that somehow the, the, the glory is going to God. As Jesus said, that they may see your Father in heaven, and, and that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And um, I just want to conclude with another thought in application. There's a verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22, and Paul says, I have become all things to all men that by all possible means I might save some. And I th as I read that, I, I think that that verse holds within it uh, a, a dangerous misunderstanding that could lead to great hypocrisy in our lives. Um, I've heard this verse quoted by people as an excuse to sin or to compromise in their way of living, to do things or to watch things or to participate in things that Jesus would not approve of if he walked the earth today. Um, Jesus was called the friend of sinners, but he did not sin. And so the point that I want to raise in this application is, in order to avoid hypocrisy, we need to ask ourselves, what is the goal of our social flexibility? What I'm referring to is if we're trying to be all things to all people, 
the, the goal that Paul has is that he might save some. And so the, the point that Paul is making is that I'll, I'll be with those people because I want to see them come to Christ, and I'll be with other people because I want to see them built up in Christ. But sometimes we see in, in, among Christians, and even perhaps in, in our own lives, that we can be with one group of people and, and do things that, that would not be becoming of Christians, and we justify being with them, participating in what they do, because we think that, well, we need to maintain a friendship with them and hope one day to talk about the Lord. And then the very next day we may be with somebody else and we may be doing things that would be seemingly okay in the Lord's eyes and so on. And uh, I would say that that's an area of hypocrisy among Christians sometimes, that, that we can be different people with different people. Um, and so the question to test that hypocrisy is to ask ourselves, what is the goal of our social flexibility? If we can be with a broad spectrum, that's great. But are we compromising in, in doing so? So how does hypocrisy creep into our faith practices? And what can we do to be genuine followers of Jesus Christ? That is the question I want to leave you with as you go home, as you talk about this and ponder it. And may the Lord lead us all to be sincere followers, devoted followers of Jesus Christ. God bless you.